I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We don't know if we actually still can solve this problem. The momentum of the physics is enormous. But the best science indicates we still have a few years. We still have a narrow window that is closing fast. So let's absolutely give it everything we've got for the next few years. And whatever that means, whether it means, you know, some of us end up in jail or it means people give money that is painful to give or whatever it is they do, that's what has to be done if we're to have any hope here. That's Bill McKibben, who for 30 years has been writing perceptively and passionately about the existential risks to the planet posed by climate change. In our conversation, we talked about why irrefutable facts get ignored, why now is our last hope to rescue our children and grandchildren and grandchildren's grandchildren from a brutally different world, and how the COVID virus is a timely reminder of how we should be thinking about and taking action on climate change. I'm so excited to be talking with you today because you really helped get the ball rolling in a major way about climate change. And I have to tell you, I get asked probably more about how to communicate about climate science, about climate change, than any other subject. Yep. And in the past 30 years since you got the ball rolling, what's changed for you in the way you communicate about it? Well, I've been forced to understand some harder truths about the world. You know, when I wrote The End of Nature, which was the first book about climate change. I was 27, I guess, when I wrote it. So I was pretty naive about the world. And I think my theory of change was people will read my book and then they'll change, you know. Um, (laughs) That's a reasonable conclusion. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people read the book. It came out in 24 languages. It was a bestseller. But it turns out that's not how the world works. I, I, I continued, though, to think, well, we're in an argument here. And if people keep writing books and having symposiums and articles, and eventually the weight of evidence will have reached the point where our leaders will have to act, you know. And I I continued thinking that for a good decade until it finally became clear to me, Alan, that we'd long since won the argument. The science on climate change was abundantly clear a thousand times over. We'd won the argument. We were just losing the fight because the fight wasn't really about data and reason. The fight was about money and power, which is what fights are usually about. And the other side in this fight, the fossil fuel industry, had so much money and had so much power that they were you know, able to keep doing what they were doing, despite the fact that it was breaking the planet. And that's when we really started doing, along with writing books, started organizing big movements. And and happily, those have now grown to the point where, you know, between the Greta Thunbergs and the Sunrise movements and all the other young people around the world and 350.org and Extinction Rebellion and so many things, we have some weight that's getting roughly equivalent to the weight of the fossil fuel industry in our political life. And, And so things are starting to shift. There's sure a lot of weight there. I, I remember reading in something you wrote that they knew from the beginning what the science was. This is the tragic and 
completely crazy making part of this story. You know, if we just stumbled off this cliff blindly, well, what the hell? I mean, it'd be like the pandemic. I mean, something just comes out of nowhere and hits you in the face. And um, what are you going to do about it? Um, That's not the case here. It turns out, and we now have great investigative reporting over the last five or six years to back this up beyond any shadow of a doubt, that the big oil companies knew everything there was to know about climate change back in the 1980s. As when you think about it, you would expect. I mean, Exxon was the biggest company in the world. It had a huge staff of scientists, and its product was carbon. So, of course, they were going to find out what it did, and they did. By the mid-1980s, their scientists were telling their senior executives precisely. I mean, they, they gave them charts that showed what the temperature and the CO2 concentration would be in 2020, and they were right on. And they were believed that Exxon started building their drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. That's the most amazing thing to me. They took care of their business investment by not building their drilling rigs where they'd get swamped. But the people who might be building their houses a mile away, they didn't worry about them, apparently. They didn't tell any of the rest of us. And this is documented. This is yes, real this investigative is not, reporting. This is, this is documented. And now, you know, there are attorney generals from half a dozen states suing the oil companies precisely for all of this. It's not only that they didn't tell anybody, it's that they then all worked together to build this elaborate architecture of disinformation and deception and denial. And it worked. I mean, we went from a world where in 1988, the Republican president of the United States, George H.W. Bush, shown the science, said, well, we're going to fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. That's a pretty good line, you know, and and it was a reminder that this was not always a kind of polarized, impossible thing. After 30 years of orchestrated lies, we've reached the point where the president of the United States, also Republican, is able to get away with announcing that it's a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. I mean, uh, uh, that's what happens when able communicators with endless amounts of money and no compunction about the future or the truth or anything else go to work, you know. The situation seems more dire than it ever seemed. I read you were saying somewhere that 30 years ago, scientists were telling you of conditions that would take place 100 years from then, and they're happening now. The world turned out to be much more finely balanced than we understood at the beginning of this. I mean, scientists by their nature are conservative. They always underestimate rather than overestimate. But it, it was more than that. It's This was an experiment that we hadn't carried out before. And, it, you know, it's easy to imagine the world as incredibly stable because for all of human history, it has been. The last 10,000 years, you know, the natural world has just been a backdrop against which all our dramas have played out. But it turns out that the amount of destabilization we've already accomplished is enough to toss everything off kilter. And, you know, viewed one way, it's very little destabilization. We've increased the amount of the sun's energy that we trap near the surface of the earth 
by about one a little bit less than one watt per square meter. So per square meter, one of those small white Christmas tree lights, okay? Which doesn't sound like much, except that there are a lot of square meters on planet Earth, 500 <clears throat> trillion, something like that. So if you add up all those watts, you get the heat equivalent every three or four seconds of setting off a Hiroshima-sized bomb. And that's been enough to melt most of the ice in the summer Arctic. Uh, it's been enough to dramatically change the way that water moves around the planet because now it's evaporating more quickly and then uh, uh, falling down more quickly in places that are wet. Uh, because it evaporates more, we see these kind of epic fires that we're seeing now on the West Coast of the United States. I mean... That extra energy trapped in this narrow system is manifesting itself in a thousand ways. And the real scary part of that is that we've only increased the temperature so far about one degree Celsius, but we're on the path, if we stay on the kind of business as usual path we're on now, to raise the temperature three or four degrees Celsius, six, seven, eight degrees Fahrenheit, over the course of lifetimes of people who are already alive, you know, if we do that, you know, we're not going to have civilizations like the ones we're used to. I mean, hell, as we're recording this this afternoon, 500,000 people in Oregon have had to evacuate their homes and flee in front of roaring fires. I wanted to ask you about that. As little as a couple of years ago, I felt that the common wisdom among scientists was that you can't say that current weather is a product of climate change very easily because they're, they're on such different scales. But now you're, now you're talking about the fires in California and all over the West Coast and Hurricane Laura, I think. What's the connection? Why are we now able to say that there's a connection between the weather and the climate like that. Yeah, well, we really are. Cause, I mean, look, to today's, uh, <laughs> today's front page banner headline in the New York Times is disastrous wave of climate events slams California. Um, the reason that we're able to is, A, that we're further along into the global warming era, so it's ever easier to see these things. But also scientists have done a lot of work in this field called attribution studies, where they're able to take any event and kind of match it up against the historical record and say, is there any way that this could have happened before we changed the temperature and the atmosphere so dramatically? And so when they look at events like, you know, these fires or these droughts or whatever it is, and they'll say, this has become 600 times more likely, 800 times more likely as you warm the climate. In essence, we're able to say without any doubt, this is the, what climate change looks like. There's no other reason that we've lost huge, maybe half the world's coral reefs. Uh, no other reason that the ocean is 30% more acidic than it was 40 years ago. No other reason that the uh, you know Greenland uh, ice sheet is losing seven Olympic-sized swimming pools full of water every second. That's mm. what happens when you pour all this energy into a system. It seems to me that even if you focus less on making your argument and more 
on organizing people to demonstrate that you still have to communicate because you've got to you've got to inspire oh, the people absolutely. you want to organize and keep them organized because the, the the wave the tide they're working against is very powerful so what do you, how do you do that what do you do well you try in so many ways so let me give you a couple of examples when we started this organization called 350.org, it's a weird name. Yeah, well, I wondered what the name meant. We chose it on purpose. In 2008, our greatest climate scientist, James Hansen from NASA, at my request actually, published a study saying what the number was, the kind of boundary condition for a safe planet. He said anything more than 350 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere is not compatible with uh, the planet as we've known it. And we were then at about 390 parts, and now we're about 420 parts per million, 415. Um, so way too high. That's why we're seeing all these things. But we chose that weird name for two reasons. One, this is a global problem, the first really global problem. They don't call it global warming for nothing. So communicating with Arabic numerals is much more easy across linguistic boundaries than communicating mm. with English words. But the second reason was because I knew that every time uh, anybody reported about it, they'd have to explain what it meant. And they'd have to tell this story. And people said, well, you know, it's too, it's too, um, it's too technical. People won't understand it or it's too depressing because we're already past it. And I said, I don't think so. I think the analogy is to when you go to your doctor and, you know, if you, you can sit with your doctor and your doctor says, oh, you know, if you keep eating like this, someday your cholesterol will be too high or something and you don't pay much attention. But when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, huh, your test results show your cholesterol is up in the zone where people have heart attacks. I think you might actually have actually a couple of small strokes already. You know, that's the moment at which people are like, okay, what pill do I take? You know, uh, tell me, tell me what to do now. And, and it, you don't have to, you know, know everything. I mean, only an idiot goes home from the doctor and starts searching the internet for websites that say cholesterol doesn't exist, you know. Um, instead, people just buckle down and go to work. Well, you raise an interesting question. Things are so in such bad shape at the moment. What pill do we take? How can we how can we ameliorate the situation? Is it at all possible to get back to where we were a while ago? Well, in in my lifetime and yours, we're not going to get back to where we were before. And we may not actually ever be able to get back there. The question really now is whether we can keep from going so far down this path that we just cut the knees out from under civilizations. And again, that's an open question. Um, we've waited a very long time to get started. But there are things right now that are very, that are very, I hesitate to use the word optimistic, but that give us a chance. And one of them is the one I've already described, the fact that we've built this large movement. But that movement would be useless without some way for, for some alternative to burning coal and gas and oil. The good news is that over the last decade, the engineers really did their job, Alan. The, um, the price of solar panel, of wind power, 
dropped about 90%. This is no longer alternative energy. This is now the cheapest way to generate power across most of the world. Um, and, and therefore, we do have a chance if we really wanted to, if we really went at it the way that, say, we went after building tanks and planes in the years after Pearl Harbor, then we would be able to dramatically decarbonize this country in the course of a decade or two. And this world, in some ways, it's easier in those parts of the world that haven't yet built out as much of an energy infrastructure as we have. So it's not quite beyond possible to do something about it. But, and this is the part that I think is hard to communicate sometimes because it's novel, it's different from our other political problems. This one has a time limit. We're used to political problems where we just come back each year and nibble away at them a little bit. You know, we'll take on poverty or race or whatever, and we don't do enough, but we get another chance, you know. There is no another chance here. Um, if we don't solve this soon, we never solve it because we go past tipping points from which there's no retreat. Once the Arctic melts, there's no plan for how to freeze it back up again, okay? So the the world scientists who are getting better at communicating exactly how urgent things are published their last report on this in 2018. And what it said was that if we wanted to meet the climate targets we'd set at Paris, we needed by 2030, so a hard deadline, 10 years away, to cut emissions about in half. Okay, that's a very tall order mm, on the bleeding edge of the possible. But at least we know what it is. I mean, uh, climate change is a math problem, and that's the math. Probably the most widely read thing I ever wrote, except for maybe the end of nature, was a piece in Rolling Stone some years ago, uh, which got went super viral, which was odd because what it was was a kind of collection of numbers. It laid out the new science that showed how much carbon scientists said we could pour into the atmosphere and have any hope of, of dealing with it, and compared it to how much carbon the fossil fuel companies had in their reserves and were planning to burn. And it mm. turned out they were planning to burn five times as much carbon as scientists mm. said was possible. Once people got those two numbers in their head, then they were able to say, huh, these are kind of rogue companies. And that that single set of facts lay at the base of this fossil fuel divestment movement that's become the biggest anti-corporate campaign in, in history. We've you know persuaded institutions and universities and things worth about $14.5 trillion now to sell their holdings in fossil fuel companies, and that's put big pressure on this industry. It's weakened their political power. After our break, I'll talk with Bill McKibben about what actions we can take individually and collectively to give future generations a chance to avoid disaster. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. 
If you visit patreon.com slash clear and vivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors. And there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Bill McKibben and the question, what can we do? We could and should be eating lower on the food chain. Uh, you know, we could and should be fl- flying less and, and, and so on and so forth. Those are all important. Um, you know, my house is covered with solar panels and I'm uh, proud of it. And I drove the first electric Ford in the state of Vermont and I'm proud of it. But I do try to keep reminding myself that those individual actions are not actually how we're going to solve this at this point. You can't make the math work one Prius at a time now. We're too much up against it. So the most important thing, if I had one thing I could try to communicate over and over again, the most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual is joined together with others in movements large enough to make fundamental political and economic change. And if we made those changes and made them fast, then we'd have some hope here. That's the bottom line. What about nuclear power? Nuclear power is low in carbon and therefore 
uh, good in that way. Its main problem at the moment, aside from all the kind of safety issues that you know about, its main problem is it's super expensive. Uh, the price of solar and wind goes down, 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 but the price of nuclear power just keeps going up, 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 mostly because it involves building big, massive concrete installations that take decades to put up, unlike, say, a giant wind farm where you can get the same amount of power in, you know, it takes you a year or 18 months to build. Um, that said, probably a good idea when you can do it safely to leave existing nuclear power plants going instead of shutting them down um, it, because that's already built and paid for and that's low carbon energy. What about batteries? Are batteries getting more efficient? Their batteries are now following that same plummeting cost curve that solar panels and wind turbines did for the last decade. Um, and they're not only getting more efficient, they're getting way bigger. So now you can have utility scale batteries. And I, I've watched these in operation. They're pretty amazing. Within a millisecond of a cloud coming over the solar field and reducing the solar output, the battery kicks in to maintain the amperage at the perfect level. I mean, we're talking batteries, the you know, size of a uh, size of a semi-trailer truck or something mm. um, at utility scale. For your home, batteries are really good now. Uh, something like a Tesla Powerwall is completely capable of uh, providing uh, great, um, um, a, a great way to take the power off your solar panels uh, when it's sunny in the afternoon and use it all night. That's really interesting. The idea of making money out of greenness Sounds like a sales job, but it's, yeah. it's real, I take it. Well, look, the reason to do this should not be to make money. <laughs> the reason to do it is because it's a survival issue for the planet. That said, there are a lot of people in our world who are motivated by making money, some of them by getting rich. The good news, I think, is you can't get quite Exxon rich. And the reason for that is like if I sell you a solar panel, I can make some money doing it, maybe a lot of money, okay? But once I've sold you a solar panel, every morning when the sun comes up, the power gets delivered for free. That's why Exxon hates it so much. Exxon's spent a century becoming incredibly rich and powerful by making you write a check every month for your next delivery, you know? And now you don't need the delivery anymore because uh, there's a enormous nuclear reactor, you know, 80 million miles away in the sky that so far has risen every morning. <laughs> it's the old Gillette selling you a razor cheaply, but selling you the blades every week. Exactly right. That's the exact perfect analogy. So whether we're communicating about this or organizing, it seems to me that we have to find a way, a better way than we have now to get people to think communally to understand that they're part of a group and to think about the future. It's, it's, there are just so many degrees of freedom between here and later. Yep. It's much easier to keep track of what's happening now and complain about it than to do something about the conditions that will affect us tomorrow. Well, here's a place where I think the trauma and the horror of the pandemic actually may end up doing us kind of a favor. 
I think it may rewrite our political instincts a little bit. You know, you and I have spent most of our lives in the political shadow of Ronald Reagan, who redefined our political life by insisting that markets were going to solve all problems and that there'd be a kind of, you know, a sort of hyper-individualism. And basically our job was just to get rich ourselves and, you know, so on. Um, in fact, what was Reagan's great laugh, Reagan, a great communicator, what was his great laugh line in all his speeches? The nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, you know, ha, ha, ha. Um, turns out that the scariest words in the English language are, we've run out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house is caught on fire and you've got to go right now, okay? And neither of those yield to uh, market solutions, you know? They require that we learn again to work together as human beings. And and uh, maybe we will be able to and maybe we won't. Uh, I mean, I think that's really the question for the next couple of decades. Do, do you have ways of helping people become awake to that problem, to, the, to the, the problem of how we've sequestered ourselves in our own self-interest physically and temporally. How do you wake them up? What's really interesting is that the hyper-individualism that we've engaged in in our society, the uh, incredible level of consumerism, all of that, turns out not to have made us particularly happy. When you go back and look at the survey data, Americans report the highest level, uh, the, the highest number of Americans say that they were very happy with their lives sometime in the 1950s. And even though we've now tripled the amount of stuff that we each have, you know, I mean, we have appliances to do jobs we hadn't even thought of as jobs in the 1950s. You can get any food in the world at your supermarket, you know, every vaguely musical sound emitted on earth is six inches away on your phone, you know. It, the odd thing is it hasn't conspired to make us that happy. And when you look at the data, what becomes clear is that humans were built for contact with each other. Um, we're social creatures. And all the things that went with that hyper-individualist prosperity, especially the project of moving to the suburbs and building ever bigger houses ever farther apart from each other, simply reduced mathematically the number of people we were in touch with. I mean, you and I were talking earlier about your wife's book about growing up in the Bronx, you know, um, which was full of voices and, you know, it, it was a physically crowded space. You never mm. ran out of people around you. And sometimes that was a pain in the butt, I'm sure, but it also had its delights. The average American has half as many close friends as the average American in the 50s. Mm. There's not, I enough, didn't know that. not enough iPads in the world to make up for that. On the other hand, again, I have a feeling that some of those things may be changing now. I think a lot of people have had the odd sensation during the pandemic of being at home with their families in a way that they hadn't before. Right. And a lot of people are finding that that might not have been the worst thing in the whole world. I mean, yes, people are ready for their kids to go back to school, no question, you know. 
but there was some real beauty hidden back in there too. What's so interesting about COVID is that, you know, we put the society in lockdown. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, that was the most dramatic changes in daily life that I've ever undergone. I think Amazing to see an entire nation do it like that. Uh, and, and nations all over the world. world but to be it. part of this nation it was, it was very, uh, I agree, very unusual. And, and what was interesting was that as people stopped flying and stopped driving and things, emissions fell, but they didn't fall much. They went down about 10%. And uh, what that seems to indicate is that most of this stuff is just hardwired into the guts of the system. You have to go into the guts of the system and pull out the coal and oil and gas. We can't do it mostly on the sort of changing our behaviors day to day. Um, so that was a kind of interesting thing to learn. COVID actually taught us a bunch of things, it seems to me, um, and that help us communicate the, the situation we're in. The first thing, and, and, and most basic, and it goes to something that you were talking about before, is simply that, that reality is real, you know? When you live a life as abstracted as the lives we lead, behind as many screens, you know, as with as many comforts and conveniences, it's kind of hard to remember that physical reality hardly even exists. I mean, you can go a year with without getting wet as long as you have a parking garage at your office, you know? Um, um, I've spent 30 years trying to explain to people that physics and chemistry don't compromise and they don't negotiate. They just do what they do. And the pandemic was a reminder that exactly the same thing is true about biology. You know, the president can go on as much as he wants about how it's all a hoax, but it doesn't make any difference. The microbe doesn't care. If it says stand six feet apart and wear a mask, then you got to stand six feet apart and wear a mask. I mean, that's it sets the rules. And so that's a good reminder of what we should be thinking about when we think about climate change. The other thing, and it's kind of a corollary to that, is speed really matters sometimes. You know, the U.S. and South Korea had their first death from coronavirus on the same day in January. The South Koreans went to work. You know, they they started monitoring, testing, doing all the things you're supposed to do. They, you know, several hundred people ended up dying there, but it wasn't like what we had. And they're largely looking at it in the rearview mirror now. We now know, thanks to Bob Woodward, that though we had complete understanding of what was going to happen, we didn't do a damn thing about it for a couple of months. And that was all it took. Uh, and in climate terms, that wasted February and March are the equivalent of the last 30 years. The scientists had given their warning and we didn't take it. So now we're in trouble and now we have to move faster than ever. We have to condense the work of four decades into one decade. Before we go, listeners may have the same feeling I do. What can you give us advice on about what we can do in the next 24 hours that would have some effect on what we've been talking about? Well, this is what I was trying to say before. Trying to solve this in your own home by yourself is at this point not going to happen. If the physics of it were different, if we had 75 years, that would be exactly the way to go about it. 
Humans change best when they change slowly and gradually and things. But we don't have 75 years. We had to start 25 years ago, and we didn't. So we now have to move with enormous speed, which means we have to move all together, which means we have to have this movement organized by government. And, and, and that means that the most important thing anybody can do is join one of these movements that's pressuring governments to change, pressuring governments and pressuring banks and other financial institutions. You know, I got arrested in the, the lobby of the Chase Bank nearest uh, Capitol Hill last year with Jane Fonda was on the other side of the glass cheering us on. And uh, uh, the message was this bank gives lends more money to the fossil fuel industry than any bank in the world. That's not okay. It's got to stop. So if you can figure out how to join the Sierra Club, 350.org, the Sunrise Movement, any of the environmental justice groups that have risen up in almost every community in the country, uh, uh, you know, on and on and on, any of those kind of places, then your voice may, may be amplified enough to make a real difference. I say okay. may because we really are, we have to be mature enough to say, we don't know if we actually still can solve this problem. The momentum of the physics is enormous. But the best science indicates we still have a few years. We still have a narrow window that is closing fast. So let's absolutely give it everything we've got for the next few years. And whatever that means, whether it means you know some of us end up in jail or it means people give money that is painful to give or whatever it is they do, that's what has to be done if we're to have any hope here. Great. We do have to go. But before we go, we always ask seven quick questions at the end of our show. Hope, you don't, hope you're on board for that. They're, Ready to go. They're roughly to do with communication. First question, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood what causes people to ignore things that they know to be true? What, uh, what allows them to ignore those things? Because then maybe we could get them to pay attention. The second question seems to fall right along those lines. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> well, that's hard, um, especially right now in a kind of Fox News crazy Facebook kind of world, you know. Um, but I've found that simply telling people the truth and explaining to them how we know those truths can move some people to action. Those that can't have to wait for Mother Nature to make the same point. And she's doing it. I mean, at a certain point, you know, you're watching the fire out the window. Who are you going to believe, Fox News or your own lying eyes, you know? Third question, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> Boy, that's a good question. Uh, I, I was on a book tour in Brazil. People kept asking me questions about DDT and Silent Spring, and I couldn't figure out why until someone told me that the Portuguese translation of my book said, instead of saying, in the tradition of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, said, by the author of Silent Spring, <laughs> Rachel Carson. So people had decided I was Rachel Carson, <laughs> and, and I had a whole bunch of odd questions. 
How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, that's a good question for me because I do tend to rattle on. Um, <laughs> um, I think I think a, a good joke is often the best uh, method of slowing people down. It's funny. I find a bad joke stops conversations <laughs> that <works> much too. <laughs> better. <laughs> that works too. <laughs> okay, let's say you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? Well, first of all, Alan, what's a dinner party? I've I've long since forgotten how, what what these even are. <laughs> I, I, I think the real question is: you're on Zoom with someone, and how do you? <laughs> how did you used uh, to do it? Can you remember? Sure. You find something you have in common, which in my case, usually, since I love the natural world and the outdoors, is um, uh, some place that we both love. Because I've been to a lot of places and hiked and wandered a lot of places. So I can usually find some place in common that people love. And that's a good basis for then thinking about larger questions. Okay, next question. Next to last. What gives you confidence? I don't know if anything gives me confidence. But a certain amount of hope I take from the wonderful rise of young people uh, around the world in the last two or three years, you all know about Greta Thunberg, but there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs in every corner of the planet. And if junior high school and high school students can do this, well, then it's incumbent upon the rest of us, especially their grandparents, to figure out how to back them up with everything they got. Last question. What book changed your life? Oof. The problem here is just that the list is so long. Um, but I think I'd have to say that the Stephen Mitchell translation of the book of Job from the Hebrew Bible uh, was right up there. Um, it's the first, God's soliloquy at the end of Job is the first great piece of nature writing in the Western tradition and one of the most philosophically challenging and interesting ones. I ended up writing a book about it. So that may be the book that that most, for me, shook my world. That's interesting to me because when I was 24, I performed the book of Job as a play. Of course. It's, it's written in dialogue. Yes, There's indeed. not much action. Mainly they sit and talk. The theme is almost unique in literature, and I, I was really taken by it. So we, we think along the same lines in a couple of ways. There you are. Absolutely. Thank you so much for a really, really interesting conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time. This has been an enormous pleasure, Alan. I really have enjoyed it. And thank you for all your work, both to bring us pleasure over the years, but also to bring us communication and ideas. So I, I, we're really grateful. Thank you so much, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye, Bill. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Bill McKibben has written a dozen books about the environment since the book that first raised public awareness of global warming, called The End of Nature, in 1989. His most recent book is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Bill is also a founder of 350.org, 
an international movement working to end the use of fossil fuels and promote renewable energy. You can keep up with his writings and his work at his website, BillMcKibben.com, and sign up for his weekly newsletter, The Climate Crisis, at NewYorker.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Clara Sousa Silva. Her research career studying one of the most noxious molecules in the known universe has suddenly placed her at the center of an extraordinary claim that there may be life in the clouds of Venus. We have detected a strong signal from the only habitable place on Venus. And the most plausible explanation for that signal is phosphine. As implausible as it sounds, um, the best explanation we have so far for the presence of phosphine in the cloud decks of Venus is life. Clara Sousa Silva, a.k.a. Dr. Phosphine, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>